The Retrograde Approach, Episode 2, The Fellowship Exam. Welcome to the Retrograde Approach. My name is Yogi Sivkumaran, and I'd like to introduce my co-host, Dr. Sam Farah. Thanks for the uh, introduction, Yogi. How are you? Good, thank you. Yourself? I'm good. So, Sam, in this episode today, we'll be following on from our previous podcast, where we provided an introduction to the fellowship exam. Uh, Sam, uh, what will we be focusing on today? Well, Yogi, we're basically following on with a discussion about the clinical vivas in a bit more detail. And uh, in particular, this week, we'll be discussing the operative session as well as the imaging imaging viva. And then uh, next week, hopefully, we can discuss the clinical decision-making or the, i.e., the CDM component as well as the long cases, or the long case, I should say, and the short cases. Excellent. So Sam, um, let's uh, begin by looking at the operative vivas. Um, And perhaps a good place to start here is to describe the structure of the operative viva itself. Well, the operative viva, like uh, most of the other vivas, is 30 minutes in length. Basically consists of six separate operations you're asked to describe. So the whole thing, as I said, is 30 minutes long. So you get uh, five minutes per operation. And I I remember very vividly during my operative viva that um, after five minutes, uh, basically your time has finished for that question. And as we will discuss shortly, I think that's usually more of a blessing rather than a curse. Yeah, that, that's my recollection of the the viva itself. Uh, typically, it's uh, it's in a room with two examiners and a, uh, an external monitor and a PowerPoint presentation. The six questions are on separate slides. Um, in my experience, at the five minute mark, a bell was rung, and the the next slide was then progressed. Um, at, at the time limit itself, the examiner would stop the candidate to progress them onwards to the next uh, to the next slide. Yeah, I, I think you know as we as we mentioned in the last episode, as we've both done the exam during uh, the COVID period, you set your exam in Queensland, myself in Victoria. We had different experiences. So you had the bell, I didn't, but there was a timer on the desk. So. Uh, it was very evident that after five minutes, um, the time had elapsed and we were moving on to the next slide. Yep. And I think that's an important consideration for our uh, trainees preparing for their fellowship exam in 2021. It's still likely that there will be small variations in your exam experience depending on which state you sit. Um, And the examiners at the end of the day are trying to create a standardized exam across the board. And um, whilst your experience may be similar, do also expect some differences in what we have also sort of uh, our recollection of the exam. How many uh, examiners did you you have? So as I mentioned previously, we had two examiners in this particular station for a total of 
or for the whole exam process. But I gather, Sam, you had a different experience. So I had uh, two examiners in the room face-to-face and then there was a separate person basically watching the examination take place via uh, Zoom and a webcam in the back of the room. And I think these variations in how the examiner's setup was done was on the basis of the availability of examiners within each state, uh, with certain states having more feet on the ground, per se, compared to other states. Um, Saying that, though, I did have uh, one station where an examiner was present via Skype. Um, However, they were silent and were observing the process. So I guess moving on in the operative viva, Sam, would you be able to um, perhaps talk about how you went about preparing for the operative viva itself? I think the main advantage um, or the, I shouldn't say advantage, but the one thing to bear in mind about the operative viva is that every question to some degree can be anticipated and we can all somewhat make a list of every operation that is a part of the vascular curriculum or specialty to some degree. So you're not going to be asked an operation that no one's done before. So I remember before the actual exam, Yogi, we sat down and we just made a list of every vascular operation we could think of. I can't remember exactly how many, but um, it certainly wasn't... uh, an exhaustive list into the hundreds but it was certainly I think we came up with basically everything they asked us more or less and uh, certainly I would recommend that that was an effective um, uh, exam technique in terms of um, preparing yourself and then once we had that list we we just basically went through it one by one and and practiced answering the question as if we were asked um, asked it in, in an operative session yeah, I think the I agree with you, Sam. I think the operative vibe is the most akin to your day-to-day uh, practice, and so often it's a reflection of your um, technical um, sort of skill set that you do um, regularly. Uh, the operative allows you to demonstrate an understanding of the not only the um, complexity of care that's involved in vascular surgery, but also your approach in trying to preempt and then mitigate problems that arise along the way as well. And um, Sam and I um, had a list that we worked off, and I think this is easily done uh, when you think about your case uh, logbook and the sort of procedures that you've performed, um, as that will then help determine what sort of procedures you would prepare for. Uh, Sam, once you'd come up with your list, what did the individual operation sort of document look like for you? Um, how did you structure that response or that your approach rather? So I sort of tried to imagine that if I were, you know, phoned about this procedure as a consultant the day before by my registrar, what were the fundamental things that I needed to know about that case? So to give you an example, you know, if I was asked to do a tibial bypass tomorrow, what are the sort of things I want to know? I want to know what the inflow is like. I want to know what the outflow and the runoff is like. And I want to know what the conduit is like as a bare minimum 
because in my mind I'm thinking I would like to do this operation with a reverse long saphenous vein if possible. So with that information, I, I structured my answer like this. I'd say my preoperative considerations are ensuring there's been a preoperative vein mapping, a preoperative angiography, with a preference to perform this operation using ipsilateral reverse long saphenous vein. And then once I had said that, I would then, then say once the patient has been prepared, consented and timeout performed, I would then begin by preparing the leg from the umbilicus to the ankle and putting the foot in a sterile foot bag, etc. and then go on to describe the operation in more detail. I thought that was much cleaner and then would avoid putting yourself in an awkward position, i.e. being halfway through describing the operation and then the examiner says, okay, so you don't have GSV, what, what are you going to do? You've kind of already preempted that problem by saying, I wouldn't be in this situation because mm. I would have checked for it earlier. Yep. And I think broadly speaking, Sam, you could divide the operative viva in your approach as interoperative, uh, sorry, preoperative, interoperative and postoperative as in uh, how you approach your answer. I, I agree with you. I think when it comes to viva, to, to any viva that you do, you want to sound like you're, you're slick, you've been there, you've done that, you need to demonstrate that this is um, something you've thought about well ahead of time. Um, and so uh, the, the the strategy of dividing uh, the, your response actually helps in terms of formulating a response, but also gives you time to think about some of the nuances of what you're aiming to do here. Um, like you, Sam, I also had a, 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 I guess a prepared statement in terms of consent and preparation of the patient. Um, and that would help also give me a bit more time uh, in terms of preparing my then uh, interoperative approach. Um, the other aspect of, of VIBAs, again, given that we are under a time limit, um, when you get to a particular point where you've demonstrated a competency, do not be surprised that the examiner moves you on to the next step. Um, whilst you are trying to get through this, um, your answer in a sequential approach, the examiner is trying to get you to the point where they can mark you off as being competent. So um, I think from my experience, and Sam, I imagine it's the same with you, um, you feel like you're on a bit of a roll and the examiner cuts you off and says, well, you've done all that, you, can you move on? Uh, this is not an uncommon situation and do not be flustered. If you have to take a minute and then pro progress yourself um, just so that you can allow the examiners to give you the best mark that you can for that station. I think we noticed that um, this has been a fairly consistent pattern throughout every, anyone's description of the fellowship exams, that there's a wide variety in examining styles from absolutely no comments, no discussion from the examiner, which some people say is a good sign to not a combative interaction but some difficult questions coming up so there seems to be out there a great array of examining styles and questions that you get asked would mm. you agree with that yeah most definitely and i think um at the end of the day the examiners are there to get you through the exam um but to, to do that they want to be comfortable that you're competent and safe so they may ask you a question at the end which may seem somewhat more difficult 
and then you might be why do they ask me that but sometimes I feel that's them actually just trying to give you a better mark because you've done well so far and they're just trying to establish you know what is the extent of your knowledge have you heard or seen about this problem it's not because they may expect you to know it but they're just wondering do you know it and do you know what to do with that if you were to find it which is really you know getting to your advanced levels absolutely and i think uh, i think the the other sort of advent of the operative viva is really um the incorporation of um the previous anatomy viva and i think that's an important area to touch on as well um the anatomy component previously in the fellowship exam took the was um was performed or demonstrated through um prosected models and a description of the anatomy in front of you now with covid and the restrictions of people in room that's the and the progression of the exam itself that is now no longer a component and the anatomy is assessed all the way through all vivas but in particular the operative viva can go go down an anatomy tangent and i think you as you prepare for your fellowship exam you need to be prepared uh, to talk about anatomical variants um, as well as expected sort of inverted commas normal anatomy. Yeah. And I think this is something that's probably still taking shape. We were the first year that had the anatomy in this format. So I, I think the way it will be asked and the way it will be conducted is, is still being fleshed out. I think so, some people were asked somewhat different anatomy questions and I suspect at some point it will become a bit more standardized. Yeah, and I think, um, yeah, and I think the, so don't, I guess the the important take-home message here is do not forget to study your anatomy, but I think also it's the clinical application of your anatomy, which is actually the relevant point here, rather than learning the textbook of a Burton. Where is it relevant? How is it going to be important to you? And I think an advanced, um, candidate would be able to integrate some of the anatomical considerations into their viva response yeah but i i think everyone was sort of in agreement that a valid time level of knowledge is sufficient would you agree with that yeah absolutely and i think that's probably the level at which the examiners are going to come at it from as well um and and i think there's going to be a baseline level of knowledge um, which the textbook allows you to define yep what about yogi those more difficult um, operations that you might be asked such as alif thoroscopic sympathectomies i guess they may not be technically difficult but for people like us who train in the public system in australia they're not really operations we see commonly but yet you and I both both got to ask those questions. How should yeah. someone approach that problem? Yeah. Uh, so I guess at the end of the day, the exam is looking at a generalized level of knowledge across the board for all trainees. Um, and so the, the difficulty there is uh, each individual trainee's experience with a particular type of operation will vary across the board. However, as a final year trainee going into a fellowship exam, again, I go back to the fact that the examiner is looking for safe and competent candidates. 
And so when approaching an, an, an operation which you may not have performed yourself or you may have seen a, on a few occasions in your time as a trainee, I think it's important at the, at the get-go to mention the fact that this is a procedure that you've not seen or not performed yourself. However, you understand the principles of the procedure. And as such, you'll be describing it from a learned approach rather than a visualized approach. And I think this demonstrates to the examiner, one, that you know your limits in terms of practice at this point in time, but that you understand the principles of what are involved and you could help troubleshoot uh, the problem uh, with a colleague if you were in that circumstance. How would you modify your spiel? Would you modify it at all before you embarked on your answer? I, I would, I, as I said, I think I would, I would have it as an introductory yeah. comment um, before embarking on my sort of structure of uh, pre-operative, interoperative, and post-operative discussion of the procedure itself. But I think it's, it's probably not correct to completely blackball the examiners by saying um, this is not a procedure that I would perform. At the yeah. end of the day the examiners are trying to see that you have a baseline competency. And so your goal is to then demonstrate that you have at least read about the procedure or spoken to a colleague uh, about the procedure, a senior colleague about the procedure so that you have an understanding of what's involved. And really it's about being holistic. It's not being about I'm a, I'm purely a vein surgeon. Um, this is a this is a representation of the combined vascular practice, which is a hybrid open endo plus uh, arterial venous practice that you're going to embark on in your future career. Yep. And then the other thing I found quite helpful in preparing for these things that I hadn't seen very much of was basically just seek out people who do who do do these procedures, and then just ask them, you know, just talk me through how you do this what are the finer points of doing it and you'll find lots of things that they say that aren't written in textbooks mm -hmm. some of those things you you may not actually want to repeat so you gotta you gotta exercise a bit of judgment about yeah. what's actually safe but um there are lots of little nuances to procedures that you only get from speaking to someone who has done it and then if it's something that you're really concerned about you know just seek out the procedure and even you know early early way well before the actual exam just go to see the procedure being done maybe in a private hospital etc so yeah and i think the other the other benchmark is having a good study group because often you'll have multiple descriptions of a, a procedure and you can you can feed off each other to figure out what yep. technique would work and, and i think uh, often in vascular surgery, especially when it comes to operative practice, there are many ways that a procedure can be performed. And so it's, you, uh, I guess, as the candidate, you just need to have a strong volition as to why you are going to perform a, set, uh, a particular action. Yeah. And then you'll also just inherent a wider breadth of experience because you've got everything that I've seen, but everything you've seen and everything someone else has seen. And between all of you, you all account as someone who, you know, has actually been in a centre where they have done a lot of thoroscopic sympathectomies or worked in a centre where they've done lots of um, 
a lifts. So yeah. again, it just comes back to the whole um, power of the study group idea. Yeah. Did you notice any pitfalls in the way people prepared or handled questions? Yeah, so I think the first pitfall, as we've talked about, is to completely shut off the examiner yep. for an operative procedure that they may not have performed previously. I think this is a, I think this is a false manoeuvre in in an exam situation. Yeah, um, you really want to take the opportunity to uh, demonstrate competency across the board. So if you, when given the opportunity, take it and try and build on that. Um, now, with any viva, um, the biggest issue a candidate faces is that with um, with the introduction of new information also allows the examiner to question your, your knowledge and understanding of yep. uh, a procedure and the associated anatomy. So um, whilst, um, whilst I previously described the viva as a, a rally in tennis, gently taking the ball across the net, uh, I think as the candidate, you also need to be prepared that if you introduce a certain line of discussion, that the candidate, that the examiner may take you down a particular line of questioning. Now, you can lead that if you're confident. Um, and I think that's really where the candidate needs to get to prior to the exam itself. At the end of the day, um, your success in the operative viva is really based upon practice. Yeah. Um, because if you take every opportunity to prepare for the Viva like your list every day, you set yourself in a pretty good stead in terms of how do you then approach it, this problem. Yep. Um, colleagues of ours used to practice in the scrub sink with their consultants immediately prior to scrubbing um, or while scrubbing so that, um, first of all, they're prepared for the procedure in front of them, but they also get to talk out their answer out aloud. Yep. I the other thing that uh, people have said is useful is just actually sitting down with your study group or a consultant, get them to prepare six operations on a PowerPoint, and just do the do do uh, a practice fiver, and then just get a feel for what you know the thirty minutes feels like of just hearing yourself talk and getting sick of your own voice. I think um, just doing as many practice sessions as possible is, um, is valuable too. Yep, I agree with that. Just the last point, Yogi, before perhaps we move on. After you finished your description of the uh, operation, did you have any idea how much time you had left? Often that would take up most of the, yep. the five minutes, to be honest with you. Yep. Um, I... Don't think I got to a point where I was starting to talk about the post-operative considerations. However, um, often the examiners will take you down a particular line of questioning to really reinforce your understanding of a particular procedure, whether it's yep. an understanding of the type of graphs or materials or um, your choice of a particular approach and whether there are alternative approaches in, in a particular scenario. Yep. I, I think it's pretty fair to say that five minutes for an operative driver goes by very quickly. Yeah. Um, so I, I actually, as I said, could see the timer and basically I, I was done talking at about four to four and a half minutes, which didn't leave them a lot of time for questions, which... I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I suspect, you know, 
if they haven't had time to ask you something curly, then that's usually a good thing. Yep. Or or you've been talking continuously for five minutes yeah. and you haven't allowed you haven't allowed the examiner in. Well, exactly. Yeah. It's 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 figuring out you know that uh, how how to play the best rally you can. I think. Mm, absolutely. Should we move on to the imaging? Absolutely. So um, the second component of our discussion today uh, is in regards to the imaging viva. Um, and Sam, I guess, um, could we begin by again talking about the structure of the imaging viva? So the imaging viva um, is again a 30-minute uh, station. I think most likely there is some variability in the exact number of images you see uh, to some degree. Uh, however, the exam is actually performed in front of a uh, Mac computer running Osirix. And on the computer or on the uh, Osirix program, there's several images preloaded um, into the software. So uh, they'll have a series of ultrasound images usually to start with as well as um, uh, three or four uh, other images, well, in our in our year anyway. So, I, yep. Yeah, I guess, Sam, just before you move on, it, it probably is worthwhile just sort of um, going back and talking about the imaging modalities that you might encounter. Yeah, so uh, obviously ultrasound is a major component um, of our training, but also of the imaging viva. Um, as well as uh, CT, MRI, uh, PET scan, scan, sorry, uh, SPECT scanning. Um, were there others, Yogi? And uh, uh, the others would be um, diagnostic angiography or venography yep. uh, was, was the other aspect um, in that bundle. Yep. Um, how much of the whole Viva, from your point of view, was taken up by ultrasound? Uh, at least half. Yeah. Um, at least half. Yeah. I had the impression mine wasn't um, as long. I actually kind of felt that the ultrasound component was relatively short, maybe only five to ten minutes. And then the examiners sort of just looked at each other and just sort of nodded and decided to move on. So I think I got the impression from looking at the uh, computer that there was actually quite a lot of ultrasound images um, loaded up but I felt that once they had sort of established that they thought your knowledge was satisfactory that they um, planned to, to move you on yeah so I think um, I, I think that's fair and again the examiners are trying to get through uh, as many images as they can to demonstrate your competency yep the every image has a standardized series of um, checkpoints that the examiner is trying to hear that you you enunciate, yep. and um, the uh, examiners then mark you according to this uh, predetermined um, scaffold that's that's done by the, the the examining the examination team itself. Yep. Um, and so um, they, in your description of the imaging that's in front of you, you really want to be hitting the buzzwords or the keywords yep. uh, all the way through um, because it allows the examiners to really hone in on sort of getting you the, the four for that section. Yep. So 
maybe it's useful yogi we just also just mention uh first of all it's not uncommon to get well it's probably normal to get a normal ultrasound first yes arterial or venous yes and um we would start by describing the sort of um image you see so yeah this is a b mode ultrasound with superimposed color and spectral analysis i think we sort of landed on that um phrase would you agree with that yeah i agree and i think for the first ultrasound image you probably have to go through the process of absolutely enunciating everything on there including the type of probe used that whether the depth and focus is appropriate Uh, and then basically then describing what exactly is going on in the image itself. Yeah. Um, and then an advanced responder would then talk about the application of the, of the slide um, in terms of what it may reflect. So normal, abnormal, and if it's abnormal, what's the pathology and what's, what that could potentially reflect and what further images they would like to see. Yep. So just to maybe just go into that in a bit more detail yogi because i think some of our listeners might find that useful so we would start by looking at the b mode image um describing its gain depth focus generally yeah and and so you're making a comment about its appropriateness and whether there was anything further that could be optimized to make the image better and at that point, we might mention, I guess the main one we would see is posterior acoustic shadowing. So if there was any of that, uh, we would, or any other B-mode artifact that was obvious, we would mention it at that time. Yeah, correct. I think um, I think how an advanced responder would approach a question would be to then bring in artifacts into their response so that uh, you're not only enunciating what's going on in front of you, but also... Um, trying to demonstrate to the examiners that you've uh, been a prolific sonographer or sonologist in your time in training. Yeah. And then after B mode, would you go on to uh, the color? It de- yeah, yeah. I, I guess it depends on the image itself in terms yeah. of what's actually in front of you. But yeah. typically you're going to get, um, uh, you may get just a plain B-mode image. And I think my first image in the imaging Viber was yep. just a B-mode image of a carotid artery, common carotid artery in trans- uh, in, sorry, in long, yep. longitudinal plane with a linear array probe. Yep. Um, it sort of entirely depends on what's in front of you. So, um, y- yeah, I, I guess you would, you would. it's important to have a structure. And I think as Sam has mentioned, you would sort of, enunciate your b-mode findings and then talk about whether there are superimposed color and spectral analysis and then proceed to then describe the individual aspects that are going on yep um what sort of things would you um i guess what are the things you have to say when looking at the color when looking at the color you want to make sure that the color uh, the color is appropriately gained um you want to be able to comfortably describe direction. Yep. Uh, you want to talk about the fill. Yep. Um, and you want to be able to understand the color bar itself um, and also determine whether there's any aliasing going on um, uh, within the vessel that's being uh, in- insinated. Yep. 
and then I guess uh, very similar things with the spectral waveform. Yeah, Looking correct. At phasicity, peak systolic velocity, end diastolic velocity. Yeah. Um, any other obvious uh, artifacts, shadowing, etc. Uh, et yeah. So spectral broadening, yep. uh, whether the waveform is representative of a common spectral waveform that you've been aware of. Yep. Um, is there any implication of pathology proximal to the, to the vessel being insinated? Yep. Um, and also remember that the um, the sample gate and the size of the sample gate rel relative to the vessel itself and whether that could be better optimized. So those are broadly some of the broad strokes that you might look at. Yep. And then I think it's reasonable to have an understanding of the parameters on the side of the screen. So thermal index, mechanical index, and then the 2D settings, uh, the color settings and the pulse wave settings. I think there is some well, there is some variability, obviously, uh, yeah. in the machines. And sorry, we should also mention when you're looking at the color, describing, and when you're looking at the spectral waveform, describing the the angle. Yeah, the angle. Interest, yeah, the angle of intonation. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, to, to be honest with you, Sam, um, the best people to help you through this are your local sonographers. This is what they do day in, day out. And as a trainee coming up to an exam, you, it'd be wise to spend time talking to a sonographer and talking out slides with them so that you talk the lingo that is ultrasound. Yeah. No, that's, that's good, Yogi. That's good advice. What uh, carotid criteria did you land on? Yeah, so... Because um, this was a, uh, an interesting point of discussion amongst our study group prior to the exam. Yeah. Especially there's so, some confusion as to what was actually being uh, used at the time. Yeah, so in recent years, there's been a revised ASIM CROD criteria. Um, however, as we soon figured out um, after you contacted ASIM yourself, Sam, yep. uh, we realized that this was not actually common practice. Um, and and the older ASIM criteria, and correct me if I'm wrong, from 2011 or 2013 was... I think the current one is... 2008? 2008. Yeah, sorry. I think there was meant to be... There was a published revision that was only find that you could only find by a Google search, but wasn't actually directly uh, accessible from the ASIM website. That was published 2015. But I think it was since retracted and uh, it was still being reviewed. Yeah. So, I mean, these are some of the nuances that as a trainee preparing for your examination, you should go out and be comfortable in your mind as to what criteria you utilize. And without going into further nuances about the criteria, there are criteria for every single vessel that's insinated and reported on. Yep. And numerically, these are values that you should be comfortable and aware of. Uh, there are Society of Vascular Surgery guidelines as well in regards to some of the visceral uh, vessels, which are also important to be aware of just to give you some uh, something to fall back on in terms of targets and stenoses um, that are relative to that. Yep. 
So this is uh, live live feedback, Yogi. I've just pulled up the uh, email I sent to Asim, and uh, basically I, I I write uh, I know the two thousand eight guidelines are on the website. And I think the issue was with the peak systolic velocity of greater than two seventy for seventy to seventy nine disease, but the revision release stated it was two thirty. And uh, the reply from them was, uh, thanks for your email. Um, the 2015 guidelines, which had the peak systolic velocity listed as 230, has been deleted from our website as our expert group prefers the previous version to be the current practice. Because that was an interesting, you know, that was an interesting um you know, potentially a change of practice because then you've got to put everyone into that 70 to 79% category. You have a peak systolic velocity of 230 centimetres per second. So um, anyway, so we're still using that uh, 270. Yeah. And I guess to move on, um, ultrasounds definitely one aspect of this imaging viva. Um, it's fair to say the other imaging aspects, um, particularly CT, MRI, and PET, really requires the trainee to spend some time with a radiologist and a radiographer to really understand the nuances of um, the imaging modality that you um, will utilize in your practice, and particularly CT, MRI, PET as well. Um, and so to understand not only how these individual modalities work, but also um, what they reflect in pathology and what are some potential differentials associated with them. Um, Sam, in in my exam and as well as in yours, we got um, a CT angiogram, which I think is should be expected. I think that's not yeah. an I think that's a pretty standard imaging modality that we're all comfortable in interpreting. And part of the exam technique is being able to enunciate again the imaging as it is um, as you go down through the slices. Now, Sam, you and I had a slight difference in experience here. For me, the examiners controlled the, the, yeah. the scan and I wasn't able to control the scan myself. But either or, you, you do need to feel comfortable talking out aloud a, proce- yeah. a, a CT. I yeah. think that, that comes with the territory of what we do. Yeah, so I think... Number one, in terms of to what uh, to what level do you need to know a particular imaging modality? Ultrasound, you really need to know back to front. So as we said, all the different scanning uh, modalities, criteria, etc., artifacts included. CT, you really need to know at a very high level as well. So how it's acquired, what are the different scanning modalities used? Uh, what are the different reconstruction methods used, how they use, and what are the different um, CT artifacts you might um, encounter. They probably won't ask you all of that, but I think in our sort of wave AVT lead-up, there were certainly questions that were asked, and I understand AVT has been cancelled for this year, but they certainly those sort of questions uh, were uh, common. Yeah, and I think the knowing some of the technical aspects of CT is is particularly useful, such as yep. um, contrast volume, con- contrast used, um, bolusing techniques, 
um, reconstruction options such as multiplanar reconstruction or uh, the maximum intensity projection, the MIP, um, yeah. all, of, all of which are important to understand, but also remember yeah. the, te- the technical side of it, which are also uh, how a CT is obtained, what do the slices mean, and how has that changed the sort of imaging uh, quality that we've obtained uh, at the moment. Maybe, Similarly, as a, uh, maybe as a brain scratcher to our audience, Yogi, we can... We can pose the question, how may you tell the difference in CT between a thrombose dissection and an intramural hematoma? Great question. Great question, uh, I know. We'll, we'll leave it to our audience to answer out aloud. Sounds good. Um, and then similarly, um, MRI, um, which is um, an imaging modality which we use routinely uh, in practice, however, our understanding of the physics associated with it, the potential artifacts, the interpretation of it is vital. And I think this is where spending time um, going through the detail with um, a radiologist actually helps you immensely in the exam. Yep. But I, I think with MR, that's where it starts to diverge between the other modalities in terms of complexity. I think with MRI, you could really spend you know, a whole six months at a university level studying MRI to learn learn it back to front, really. Um, I think from our point of view, you, you should know uh, how it's acquired, um, what are some of the basic sequences that we would use in vascular surgery and how may you... Um, uh, interpret MRI and how do you actually interpret MRI for some of the common things we use it for, i.e. MRI brain in acute stroke and um, uh, especially uh, MRs of the foot, uh, especially yep. in the setting of uh, infection and Charcot's. Yeah, I think, I think that's fair. And, and sort of to bring this section to an end, the other uh, imaging modality that's well worth considering um, is PET scanning. Uh, whilst that did not appear in our exam, um, it's definitely a modality that's more commonly used. And I think having an appreciation of the, uh, the technique um, and how it can be utilised in pathology is very useful across the board. Yep. So I guess, um, Sam, that's the summary of um, both operative and imaging vibers today. Um, and I think that hopefully can help dispel some of the challenges with the with this part of the exam itself. In our next podcast, we'll go on to talk about the other aspects of the clinical examination, um, which will hopefully draw um, the complete examination summary um, across these podcasts to an end. Yeah. Um, Sam, I guess on, on our way out here today, it might be worthwhile just letting our examiners, uh, sorry, our listeners know, maybe our examiners, but our <laughs> listeners know um, where they can touch base with us and what our sort of details on the uh, World Wide Web are at the moment. Yep, so we're available on the uh, internet at vascular.fm. We're hopefully available um, through all good podcasting sources and uh, you can find us on Twitter at VascularFM. Yogi, it's been great. 
Thanks, Sam. And um, to our audience, thank you for uh, for listening in. Uh, you can get in touch with us also through our Gmail account, the, the retrograde approach at gmail.com if you've got ideas or comments or feedback. Uh, but um, we thank you uh, for joining us today in this discussion. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Yogi. See ya. Cheers. Cheers.